Would you pray with me once more? Lord Jesus, as we already sang earlier, we are just beginning to find out the greatness of your loving heart, and we pray that you would teach us more about it tonight. Amen. Well, many of us have experienced, are currently experiencing, or will experience, what so often happens to our loved ones when they get older, which is the progressive deterioration of memory. Just in the last few weeks with the home going of Miss Nelms and present situations with the Golly and Malone families, uh, we've been reminded of such conditions. There are moments when the, pers- when the person appears very aware and lucid, and there are other moments where there are such significant gaps in memory that the person actually becomes a danger to themselves and necessitate the constant care of others. But perhaps the most devastating of all is when the person that we love completely forgets their own identity. They are practically incapacitated, lost, not knowing where they are or who they are. However, what we may not realize is that many of us are just like those we love, but our form of identity loss is spiritual rather than biochemical. We forget who we are and what God says about us, and this brings with it a sense of profound insecurity. Paul Tripp writes the following. He says in his book, Broken Down House, we are always living out of some sense of identity. You are constantly telling yourself who you are, and the identity you assign to yourself has much to do with how you respond to the difficulties of life. So, Heritage Baptist Church, who are you? What identity do you assign yourself? What is the first thing that comes to mind when you think about you? The answer to that question is all important because it will determine how you respond to the inevitable difficulties of life. The writers of the New Testament knew this, and therefore they took pains in the opening parts of their letters to churches to remind those to whom they were writing of who they were and also to remind the readers or the hearers at that time of who those to whom they were writing were. They didn't just give customary hellos, but invested their greetings with the content of the gospel. We see this in the Apostle Paul over and over again, and we see this tonight in the little letter of Jude. Would you turn there with me? The little letter of Jude. If you're using a pew Bible, you will find it on page 1027. The letter of Jude. Over the next few weeks, we will conclude our brief series on the neglected New Testament with three studies in this little letter. But before we get there and before I read it together with you, I just want to lay a little background for us about what this letter is all about. Jude is writing a general letter to churches who have been impacted by some very subtle forms of deception through false teaching. He states his purpose in writing in verse 3. It was a call to those Christians in those churches to defend, fight for, contend for, the faith, 
that was transmitted to them and not to succumb to the influence of the false teachers. We'll look more at the essence of who those false teachers were and what they taught and what their behavior was like in the coming weeks. But the big question hanging over the whole letter is, how do we contend, fight for the faith? Well, the assumption in that question is that we're going to have to. The assumption is that even down to this age, in the present time in which we are living, there is going to be a need to defend, fight for the gospel. And the letter of Jude is written in part to tell us exactly how to do that. And in order to fight for the faith, Jude lays out, from what I can see, three main directions which will form the the themes of these three sermons. In verses 1 and 2, he reminds them of who he is as the writer and who they are. In fact, calling them to first know your identity. Know who you are. So that's the first direction. Know your identity. And that's the one we'll consider tonight. Next week, we'll take up verse 3 to 16, the main body of the letter. And in these verses, he reminds them of who the false teachers are, how we can know who false teachers are, by calling them to know your enemy. Know who is against you. And then in verses 17 to 23, he reminds them of what they are to do and calls them to know your responsibility. So those are going to be our three sermons. Know your identity, know your enemy, and know your responsibility. Now, with those things in mind, let's read the letter in its entirety and notice those three themes. First of all, know your identity, verses 1 and 2. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. To those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. We'll just pause there for just a second. If you have a New King James Version or a KJV, you might notice a textual variant there. It will say something like sanctified in God the Father. The reason why the King James did that is, um, well, I can't get into all the details, but The reason why ESV, NAS will have beloved in God the Father is because that is the majority Greek manuscript, actual, the majority text will translate it that way. So that's why the variance there. Of course, the both are true, but beloved is the more appropriate translation in in this context. And kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Now know your enemy. Beloved, though I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he is kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, 
defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not yet understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them! For they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are blemishes on your love feast as they feast with you without fear, looking after themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud-mouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. And finally, no your responsibility, verse 17. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, build yourselves up in your most holy faith. Pray in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forevermore. Amen. The word of the Lord. So know your identity, know your enemy, know your responsibility. This week, know your identity, verses 1 and 2. Two points. First point, the identity of Jude. Second point, the identity of Christians. Let's take the first point, the identity of Jude in verse 1. Notice he says, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. Now in the Greek, the word is Judas. Judas a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. It's very important to know which Judas we're talking about here, which is one of the reasons that English translations have used the word Jude instead of Judas. There are many, there are at least five Judases in the New Testament that we're aware of, um, and I won't take his time to turn to all of those. But Jude gives us the identity of who he is by saying that he's the brother of James. So this rules out Judas Iscariot the one who betrayed Jesus. It would be kind of strange that, a, that the one who betrayed Jesus would write a letter about people betraying Jesus. But this Jude is, identifies himself as, first of all, a servant of Jesus Christ, and secondly, as a brother of James. I want to take the brother of James one first, and then we'll come to the servant of Jesus Christ. So Jude is a brother of James. Now, if you remember, James was the, a pillar of the church in Jerusalem. In Acts 15:13, he is present speaking at the Jerusalem Council in the book of Acts. In Galatians 2:9, he is presented 
by the Apostle Paul as a pillar of the church along with Peter and John. So James was a significant figure in the early apostolic church. But what you may not know is that James was also the half-brother of Jesus Christ. Had the same mother, different father. Father was Joseph. Jesus, of course, earthly father was Joseph, but not true father. Because his true father was God himself, God the Father. But James was the half-brother of the Lord Jesus Christ and wrote the letter of James. In Galatians 1.19, it says, But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. James, along with the Lord's other brothers, did not believe in Jesus initially during his earthly ministry. Mark chapter 3, verse 31 refers to Jesus' mother and brothers. In Matthew 13, 55, the identity of the Lord's brothers are revealed. Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And Mark 6, 3 adds, and are not his sisters here with us? So the Lord Jesus had half-brothers and sisters, two of them being James and Jude. John seven twenty five. Now the Jews' feast of booze was at hand. So his brothers said to him, his brothers including James and Judas, Leave here and go to Judea that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world, for not even his brothers believed in him. So Jude and James and the Lord's other brothers did not believe in Jesus. They said, listen, Jesus, if you want to get the reputation for being the pop star that you are, you've got to go to the city, buddy. You can't be doing these kind of miracles in secret. You need to go show yourself to the world. Be good, good for the family name, too. But they didn't believe that he was truly the Savior of the world, that he was truly the Messiah. Mark 3.21, and when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying he's out of his mind. That's Jude. My half-brother is crazy. Evidently, James and presumably Jude were converted and came to believe in Jesus after his resurrection. In 1 Corinthians 15.7, it speaks that Jesus specifically appeared to James and then the other apostles. Presumably, that was when James was converted. We can't know for sure. Acts 1.14 notes that the brothers, along with their mother Mary, were involved in the prayer meeting in Acts 1. They were there. They were obviously believing by the time he was resurrected and ascended. 1 Corinthians 9.5 seems to indicate the Lord's brothers were serving him as missionaries. Listen to this. Paul writing to the church, he says, Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord? And Cephas, Peter? So when Paul was talking about the, the, that he had a right to take along a spouse with him, should he choose to do that, he was free to marry. He says that the other apostles do that along with the Lord's brothers and Peter, lumping them together with the apostolic group. So evidently, these half-brothers of Jesus were converted post-resurrection and then began serving him as itinerant missionaries. And so we have this little letter of Jude. So, But notice, Jude identifies himself not as a brother of Jesus, but as a brother of James. 
and not as a brother of Jesus, but as a servant of Jesus. Isn't that strange? The older brother he once thought was out of his mind, he now embraces as Savior and follows his Lord. So why does Jude refer to himself here as the brother of James when he could have referred to himself as the brother of Jesus? And why does he prefer the title servant of Jesus Christ? You know why? He's been saved. That's why. He's been changed by his older brother. Radically transformed. He's become a humble man. Tom Schreiner writes the following. He says, Jude did not commence the letter by emphasizing the privilege of his brotherly relationship to Jesus Christ, but his submission to Christ's lordship. If you're a Christian here tonight, can you at all relate to Jude's testimony here? Did you grow up in a believing home, very near to Christ, and rejected him as Lord? Did you grow up around Jesus only later after you after he was gone, in the sense after you left home, that you came to believe in him. Praise God that there are even Judes in our own church. Those who were near to Christ their whole life, early in their lives, only later to serve him faithfully. So parents who are troubled about wayward kids, don't lose heart. Don't lose heart. One who was in the very home of Jesus Christ did not believe. Later came to believe. Remember the testimony of Ryan Hobson. Let me read you part of Ryan's testimony. Being raised in a Christian home can be a great blessing or a great curse depending on the condition of your heart. For me, it was a curse. The more time I spent in those walls, the more apparent it became that I wanted nothing to do with Christians or anything they stood for. During the latter years of high school, my true disgusting nature began to manifest and was most degenerate in my interest in pursuit of girls. This led me to leave my parents' home right after high school to move into my girlfriend's house with her and her mother. I was angry, angry at my parents, at Heritage, at God. Eventually, my lifestyle landed me living out of my 1985 Camaro on the west end of Owensboro. I was desperately trying to be in control of my life. Looking back, I can see the gentle hand of the Father guiding me as I fought him the whole way. And then Ryan shares the story of his joining the National Guard and eventually walking into the National Guard office and then eventually becoming a Marine stationed in Hawaii where he writes of his own conversion. He says, through an ad on Craigslist, I ended up at the one place I swore I would never be, a church. The church was a tiny cinder block at the one building in in the coast of Kona, Hawaii. I guess that's how it's pronounced. Ryan can correct me if I'm wrong. It was a Pentecostal church, though in the milder sense. I arrived for my first Sunday service, not sure what to expect. I remember having to back my truck into a parking space so no one could read the raunchy bumper stickers on the back. I was mentally prepared for the judgmental looks and conversations that I associated with Christians. I even left the service a few times to have a smoke. After the service, the pastor, Gary Langley, came up to speak to me. I was ready to hear his speech about smoking in my sinful life, blah, blah, blah. What he asked me shocked me like nothing I could have ever expected. He wanted to know where he could put an ashtray outside that would be convenient for me. I didn't know what to think or say. Why wasn't he judging me? Why wasn't he belittling me and reminding me of his superior Christian status? I think he recognized my look of bewilderment. 
He went on to tell me that I am overweight. How can I come over here and talk to you about smoking if I've not been a steward of my own body like I'm supposed to be? I stayed at that little cinder block church, and through Gary's loving nature and the Holy Spirit's use of him, my heart was softened. I saw the model of a Christian love me first, saw that I was hurting and angry. I remember him asking me early on if I was a Christian. I told him no. He explained to me that expecting me to live like one, to make the same choices as one, and hold the same values as one was pointless. Till I believed Jesus Christ was who he said he was, and that all my anger and bitterness could be given over to him, why would I ever want to change my life? Ever since, I have always felt a connection with the prodigal son. That's our own brother in our own church. And some of you have similar testimonies. So God saves the Jews of the world, those who grow up within the walls of a Christian church, within the walls of a Christian home. But let me say this to any of you who are not yet disciples of Jesus. One thing that we learn from the example of Jude here is that family ties don't save you. Being a part of a Christian home does not save you. Kids, listen to me. Because your parents are Christians doesn't mean you are. Because you grow up in a Christian home, because you go to church with your parents, because you're perhaps in a Christian school, doesn't make you a Christian. Jude grew up with Jesus and was not a follower of Jesus. We don't become a Christian till what happens to us, and which I'm going to talk about in just a few minutes, but fundamentally we don't become a Christian till we serve Jesus, till we commit ourselves to him in faith. So that's the identity of Jude. He's a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. Secondly, the identity of Christians. James uses, or Jude uses three words to describe Christians at the end of verse 1. He says, to those who are first called, secondly, to those who are beloved in God the Father, and third, to those who are kept for Jesus Christ. So Christians, the identity of Christians, the ident- when Christian, when you think about yourself, these words have to be in your vocabulary. Called, loved, kept. That is your identity as a Christian. Called, loved, and kept. Let me talk about each one of those words. First of all, Christians are called. Called. Called is a one-word description of a Christian in the New Testament. Over and over again, we see the called, the called, the called. Called is an explanation of why a Christian is a Christian. We are not superior to other people. We are not more intellectually able to function than other people. It's not that reason that we became Christians. It's not because we in and of ourselves saw some worthiness in Jesus. It's because through the gospel we have been graciously and personally summoned by Jesus. The call is not just this general thing that is thrown out. Pastor Rich hinted at it this morning. It's not this general, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That is a call, but that's not this. This is saying to those who have been so acted upon by God that they were summoned out of darkness into light. That's what it means to be called. You know, when... We think of call, we think of phone calls. And if you have a cell phone, 
I think I'm the only person in the world that doesn't. <laughs> That's more for my laziness than anything. But anyway, you can reach me on my landline. But when we think of call, we think when that, when that call comes across that cell phone, we have the opportunity to answer it or not, right? You have that choice. That's not the call that's being talked about here. Not the call. The call that's being talked about here is the call that's so beautiful that you, you've been waiting for that phone call, and you, you get it, and you, you can't not answer it. That's the call that's being talked about here. To those who are called, to those who have been, who have seen Jesus for who he is, by the power of the Holy Spirit, in a mysterious, sovereign way that we can't understand, that has changed their heart, that has made Jesus irresistible, attractive, and beautiful, they have been brought by God, summoned by him to come to Jesus Christ and embrace him as Savior and Lord. That's what happened to Jude post-resurrection. He was called. He saw Jesus for who he really was, no longer as just the half-brother or the older half-brother that picked on him. He probably didn't. He's Jesus. But as the older half-brother that was always getting his family in trouble and caused him issues because he was embarrassing to be around because he claimed to be things that were weird. No longer is he weird. No, what, what happened to Jude? Why at one level, I mean, he's out of his mind, he's crazy, I don't understand him, till I love him as Lord, I embrace him as Savior, I follow him as a missionary, I'll die for him. What happened? The call of God happened. That's what happened. A sovereign, powerful call from God. And if you're a Christian, that's happened to you too. It is the reason you are a Christian. The call of God is not just God's invitation to be saved. It's God's determination to save. Let me say that again because that's important. That's the definition of the call. The call of God is not God's, just God's invitation to be saved. That is called a general call. But the call of God spoken of here by Jude is God's determination to save someone. That's an effectual call. That gets done what God wants to get done in the life of a person. And that's what happened. Christian, do you remember when you were called? Let me, let me invite Mr. Charles Spurgeon to take the pulpit now and go back with you to your call. Listen to Mr. Spurgeon as he preaches to us for a few moments. He says, Was there not a day the memories of which you fondly cherish when you are called from death to life? Fly back now to the day and hour if you can. And if not, light upon a time near it. So if you can't remember a specific point, just go to the general time of your life. When the great transaction took place in which you were made Christ forever, by the voluntary surrender of yourself to him. He says, in looking back, does it not strike you that your calling must have been of divine origin? How gracious that calling must have been since it came to you from God, came to you irresistibly, and came to you with such personal demonstration. What grace was here? What was there in you to suggest a motive why God should call you? Oh, beloved, we can hardly ask you that question without the tear rising in our own eye. 
Some of you were drunkards, were profane, were injurious. Many of you cared neither for God nor man. How often have you mocked at God's word? How frequently have you despised God's ministers? How constantly has the holy name of the Most High been used in a flippant, if not in a profane manner by you? And yet for all that, he fixed his eye upon you and would not withdraw it. And when you spurned the grace that would have saved you, he still followed you. Determined to save until at last in the appointed time, he got the grasp of you and would not let you go until he made you his friend. Turned your heart to love him and made your spirit obedient to his grace. I think throughout eternity, if we had this problem to solve, why did he call me? We should still go on making wrong guesses. But we never could arrive at the right conclusion unless we should say once for all, I do not know. He did as he wished. He will have mercy on whom he will have mercy. He will have compassion on whom he will have compassion. And here let me say, if these things are are so... Oh, should not this calling of ours tonight evoke our most intense gratitude, our most earnest love? Oh, if he had not called you, where would you have been tonight? Where would you have been tonight? I think I know where I would have been. But I don't know. He says, when you see the swearer in the street or the drunkard rolling home at night, there you are. There I am but for the grace of God. Who am I? What should I have been if the Lord in mercy had not stopped me in my mad career? Thank you, Mr. Spurgeon, for that sweet preaching (laughs) and explaining the call of God so helpfully. Brothers and sisters, where would you have been had he not called? Not just invited you, but actually pursued you, hunted you down in love, chased you down, got you, where would you have been tonight had the Lord Jesus Christ not personally stopped you in your mad career? Some of us had some mad careers. All of us had mad careers. But he called. Number two, Christians are not only called, but Christians are loved. When Spurgeon said, Why did he call me? He said, I imagine that throughout eternity we would go on making bad guesses, wrong guesses. Well, we don't have to make all wrong guesses. We do know one reason why he called, why he was determined to save us. It wasn't for any reason in us. It was for a reason in him. And that one reason is one word. And it's spelled L-O-V-E, love. We need not go on guessing throughout eternity. Believers have been loved by God the Father, and his effective love is the reason they belong to the people of God. Notice what Jude says. To those who are called, beloved in God the Father, the evidence that God loves you is he has called you. 
Literally, this word beloved, give you a little Greek lesson. This is a dative of sphere, and it can be translated wrapped in the love of God the Father. You live, brothers and sisters, you live within a sphere of love that you cannot get out of. That's where Greek is precious. <laughs> it's not just to, you know, say fancy things about it. It's to help us understand the heart of God better. We are wrapped in the love of God the Father. Do you think hard thoughts of your father, God? Do you think God is just tolerating you? Do you think he is eager to discipline you? That he is perpetually frustrated with you? Do you think he's angry with you? Wrathful towards you, distant from you? Is that the way you think of your relationship with God the Father? If you do, you lay a great grief upon his heart. John Owen said, John Owen, the Prince of Puritans, quote, we can, give no, we can lay no greater grief on the heart of the Father than not to believe that he loves us. This is an improper view of God if this is your, this is not your identity. You have memory loss. You need to return to the truth of the Bible and state what it says about you, which is that you are loved by God the Father. In all things, God has your best interest in heart. All the days of your life, he rejoices over you to do you personal good. In all things, he loves you with a personal and particular affection. Do you believe that God loves you in a personal and particular way? Well, let me ask you this question. Was his call of you personal and particular? Then his love for you is personal and particular. God loves you with a personal and particular affection. You're not just a part of one big company of blood-bought, redeemed people. You are that, but you also are the personal object of the eternal love of the eternal God. That is staggering. And if you are uncertain of this kind of love for you, it will dramatically affect your life. It will affect everything. It will make you hesitate to pray to God. It will make you vulnerable to introspection. It will make you vulnerable to condemnation. It will make you vulnerable to despair. It will cripple you, and there will be a distinct absence of joy in your life. But when you get this, when you believe this about yourself in the face of all your sin, you believe God's word. The Holy Spirit will take that truth and once again pour the love of God out in your heart. And you will be reminded that, yes, in my past, I was called, I was summoned out of darkness. I was brought out of my sin to Christ. But that right now, presently, I am in the sphere of God's love, wrapped in the love of God the Father. And I will be for all of eternity. So Christians are called, Christians are loved, Christians are finally kept. So after retracing their conversion experience, after reminding the church here that they were called and that they were loved, that they were called and they are loved, Jude turns the people's attention to the future. He's talked about the past, you were called. 
talked about the present, you are loved. And now he turns their attention to the future and says, you're kept. You're kept. The one whom God has called, the one whom God has loved, will surely be kept and preserved by God. To this church, troubled by false teachers, these are sweet words of assurance. Again, Tom Schreiner writes, Why did Jude emphasize these ideas at the beginning of his letter? Why did he write, why did he choose the words called, loved, and kept? We need to recall that these intruders threaten the faith of this church. The ultimate reason believers will persevere against the inroads of the intruders is the grace of God by which he set his love upon believers, called them to be his people, and pledged to preserve them until the end. Brothers and sisters, you will be kept by God. We were assured of that this morning with the almighty power that is at work in our resurrection from the dead, when God raised us up to newness of life in Christ, that same power is still exerted toward us. We will be kept. But when you look to the future, what do you worry about? What do you worry about? Do you worry about your finances? Do you worry about your job? Do you worry about your health? Do you worry about your family? In all of that, you need to rule out the fear of ever being abandoned by God. The truth of being kept by Jesus Christ should fill you with hope and faith regardless of the circumstances or uncertainty of the future. But then the final question comes, how do we know we're going to be kept? How do we know? I mean, there's a... The Lord knows our days, but that could be a long time for some of us. And there's a lot of obstacles out there. Well, notice how he closes his greeting in verse 2. How do we know we're going to be kept? Well, we could say the call was secure and God does, as, as Romans 11 says, the gifts and call of God are irrevocable. When God calls a person, he never takes it back. Or we could say, when God loves a person, he never stops loving them. And when God keeps a person, he never stops keeping them. But notice verse 2. May mercy, peace, and love be lavished on you, multiplied toward you. Here's why you will be kept. Multiplied mercy, multiplied peace, multiplied love, lavished from God on you. For the rest of your days, that's why you'll be kept. There'll be enough mercy to get you through. There'll be enough peace to get you through. There'll be enough love to get you through, to keep God committed to you. You know, over and over, this word translated multiplied, it's used in the New Testament several times, but it often refers to numbers of people increasing. It's used a lot referring to in the book of Acts of the disciples being added, more and more disciples increasing. What's the picture? The mercy, peace, and love of God just keep going up. They keep going up in the life of a Christian. They don't go down. We think when we sin, oh, that was a deposit out there. That was a withdrawal out of the mercy bank. It's a little bit less now. It's going down. It's going down. That's not the picture. The picture is right up. Mercy's going up. Peace is going up. 
Love is going up. Up, 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 up. Multiplied, lavished on us. Christian, this is your identity, and this is what God wants you to live in the good of. This becomes extremely practical in the day-to-day struggles of life. So let me conclude here with just practical ways. What do we do when we have memory loss? What do we do when we start living in a substitute identity? What can we do to live in the good of this? Being called, loved, kept, servants, brothers of Jesus Christ. Because we are. How can we live in the good of that? Well, let me conclude with a little a practical way that I think it, it, it's just a practical way of doing what Colossians 3 calls us to do, putting off and putting on. Okay? So here, here's where we start. We identify any sinful pattern in your life, any sinful pattern that you are presently, whether that's a sinful pattern of discouragement, uh, bitterness, anger, some sort of attitude issue, or a behavioral sin pattern. That is rooted in identity problem. It is fundamentally, you are believing something else about yourself than what God has said about you. And it's causing you to live a different way. That is the reason. Jude knew that. And that's why he reminds them up front of who they are. So we have to identify what sinful patterns are in my life. This past week, discouragement, bitterness. There's the pattern. Okay? Anger toward people. Okay, so that's my sinful pattern. Now, I ask the question, okay, why? What's motivating me? What do I want? What's my identity that I want to have, that I'm angry about that I don't have? I want to be considered a great teacher at school, and I want people to respect me because I'm a top-notch teacher. And I'm upset with people that they keep correcting me for things. So my identity at that moment is in my job. It's in my status. It's in the way other people view me in my vocation. When we see that, when you see what your identity of the moment is, what you're putting your trust in, making something else more fundamental to your happiness than God, my status in front of people, we have to confess that as sin. I have to say, God, I'm making something more fundamental to my happiness than you are. I'm making that person more fundamental to my happiness than you. I care more about their opinion of me than your opinion of me. And it's causing me to be discouraged and angry toward them. It's fear of man. It's fear of man. That's the biblical definition for it. And then you have to confess that. So you identify the sinful behavior pattern. You trace your patterns to your identity of the moment. You confess your sin. Then you find your true identity. You remind yourself of who you really are. I'm called. I'm loved. I'm kept. And you trust a biblical promise. May grace, mercy, and peace be multiplied to you. Grace, mercy, and peace are coming my way. I haven't disqualified myself by this discouragement and this terrible attitude problem I've had. And we get our identity back. We all have temporary amnesia all the time. And this is how we get our identity back. Tim Keller says, We habitually and instinctively look to other things besides God and his grace as our justification, hope, significance, and security. We believe the gospel at one level, but at deeper levels we do not. Do you believe that? 
You do. I do. We believe the gospel at one level, but at deeper levels we don't. Human approval, professional success, power and influence, family and clan identity, all of these things serve as the heart's functional trust rather than what Christ has done. And as a result, we continue to be driven to a great degree by fear, anger, and lack of self-control. You cannot change such things through mere willpower. Through learning biblical principles and trying to carry them out. We can only, get this, we can only change permanently as we take the gospel more deeply into our understanding and into our hearts. We must feed on the gospel, as it were, digesting it and making it part of ourselves. This is how we grow. And that's why I preached this message. That's why when I read those first two verses, I said, stop, that's a sermon. That's a sermon. We don't skip over the gospel to get to things we really want to talk about, which is defending the faith. That's not the reason Jude wrote this letter. He did, but let me explain. Verse 3, what does he begin with? Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation. You know what's big in the apostle's heart? The gospel is big. And he finds it necessary to write about false teachers. May this church never, ever, ever be known for what it's against. We must be known for what we are for. We are for the gospel. We are big-time pro-gospel at Heritage Baptist Church. That is the main thing. And our main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing and not get sidetracked by important but peripheral issues. Because D.A. Carson says, and we listen to D.A., he's an important New Testament scholar. D.A. says, when something from the periphery is in creeps in to, to so displace what it should be in the center, we are not far removed from idolatry. Churches get warped when they build on anything other than the gospel. And that can include Reformed Baptist distinctives. And don't get me wrong there. Okay? Hear what I'm saying. We must build on this called, loved, kept. And does that include the doctrines of grace? You better believe it. But we don't lead with that. We lead with Jesus out front. And may God help us to do that even as we consider this letter. So every time we're struggling with identity amnesia, which you will this week, return again to this. Brothers and sisters, write this on a postcard. Put this on the dashboard of your car. Tape this to your mirror in the morning. Put this in your pocket or wallet, men. Called, loved, kept forever. Let's pray. Father, thank you for reminding us again tonight. You reminded us all day. But thank you for your word to us today, which has is, which is soaked us in the gospel. It has soaked us in the greatness of your love for us in Christ. It has soaked us in grace. It has soaked us in mercy. It has soaked us and lavished upon us peace and joy. And we ask that you would help us now to, by faith, live in the good of that. For the glory of your name. Amen.